I would say we improve every day. We still do that. We're trying to do excellence, right? It's like you're never, never, ever, ever happy. You never sit yourself and be like, oh my God, we got it because you got it, but we still want to make it even better towards a better for you beef, right? So a beef that takes even more than beef. Who knows, right? This will be really attractive as a proposition in the future. Hey, hey Rob. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Rob, welcome back. Hey, Carl, I'm happy to be back. It doesn't even feel like you were gone because we recorded while you were in Copenhagen. Now that you've been back for a week, what's your takeaway from being there? I would love to live there someday. I lived in other parts of the world before, and it's beautiful and it's great, and like it's very calming. And when I was in Copenhagen, I was speaking to this woman, Sheila. She works at Space 10, which is the innovation center, kind of spawned out of Ikea. And she actually lived in Brooklyn and she worked at New Lab for a while. And one of the things that I was asking her is how do you like living in Copenhagen based in Brooklyn? And she was like, it's nice to come, but kind of miss the hustle. And I was right. like, yeah, I felt that same thing when I was in Malaysia. I lived in Malaysia for two years and it was great, but New York is the place or even like SF or just those cities where things are happening at a very fast pace, like innovations happening. I would love to live in Copenhagen for maybe a couple of years, but I would probably come back to New York, maybe learn some lessons from Copenhagen, like the way that they separate trash and everything, but yeah. um, come back to New York and apply some of those principles and enjoy life. I do enjoy life now, but... In the the hustle. Yeah, Yeah, uh, you had mentioned previously that you enjoyed the playgrounds and that how people were into recycling, which I think is a big thing there. It is across Europe. It's something that we can learn from them. Any comments on that? Because we do have recycling in Brooklyn. It's not at the level that it is in Europe. Yes, there's definitely a lot of recycling. When I visited one of the companies while I was there, um, they're like, hey, would you like some water? So they give me a water bottle. And I just drank a couple of sips because I was busy talking. And as I was leaving, I was taking the bottle and they said, wait, I need that bottle back. I'm like, oh, well, I'm still drinking. There's a lot of water in here. No, we have a policy where you can't take any of the bottles we provide outside of the premises. And we have to keep the deposit, keep the bottle. And I was like, wow, that's such an interesting policy. It's not a really a big deal. It's like, all right, here's a bottle back. But they saw it as their footprint and they didn't want it to leave their facility, which I thought was very interesting, interesting. super interesting. And then we were staying at a hotel and in the hotel, they had different bins too. They had regular trash, they had some recycling, and then they had composting bin in the hotel room. So I was like, wow, like this is next level businesses adopted. I couldn't imagine that in the US, but I guess I could now because it's happening. And I thought that was very cool, but things are happening. Like I mentioned in Brooklyn, there are these composting bins. They're in a variety of street corners in the neighborhoods of Brooklyn, and they are operated by an app. You download the app. And then when you get to the bin, you just click unlock on the app and the bin opens up and you drop your compost in there, which is really great. They also said that they accept plastic bags. So if you put the compost in a plastic bag, you can throw that plastic bag into the compost. But the thing is that everyone's using it, which is great, but they're so full all the time. You go in the app, I'm like, all right, where's a compost in bin near me that I want to deposit this compost. And you look at the map and has all the bins and they're all like red, meaning that they're all full. So I couldn't dispose of the compost. So People were starting to put the compost on top of the bin because they walked all the way to a bin and they couldn't open it because it was full. They dropped the compost on top of the bin, which is terrifying now that summer's coming up 
and compost outside. <laughs> it's like, I'm scared. I'm scared for summer and compost. Yeah, so, <laughs> so listen up, city of New York. You need to get more composting bins out there or you need to empty them out quicker. We have composting in our building and it's a brown bin that we fill and then we take it out once or twice a week, I believe. And the big thing in our building is making sure that it's sealed, that it latches closed, making sure that it's latched the right way because there are a lot of rats around New York City. And anytime that there's construction, it disrupts rats from one place and they move to a place that's quieter. I've said it before on this podcast, I think garbage is a huge opportunity. And in New York City, that compostable garbage, that is money to be made because that is biomass that could be fed to a variety of organisms. I know that in a few places around the world, I want to say in Malaysia or Indonesia, the organic garbage gets fed to black fly larvae, to grow black fly larvae, and the black fly larvae are turned into a very clean oil that has multiple uses. Rerum, you've heard me say this, and those of you who would listen to the podcast, I'm a big believer that every department of the city should have a biotech incubator attached to it, and we should start with sanitation because sanitation presents tons and tons of opportunities. And the fact that the city generates between 10 and 15,000 tons of garbage a day, it's a gold mine. Well, you should run for mayor. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> but we have met a fair number of people in the last few months that are somehow more associated with the food side of the mayor's office. I'm not sure so much on the innovation side. Anytime I meet someone from the city, I do say we need to build a biotech incubator that is attached to the city. But there are multiple incubators. The city just needs to make programs available to those incubators that are specific to solving city-specific problems. But let me get off my high horse about (laughs) sanitation and landfill is a trillion dollar industry. Iram, it's Wednesday afternoon in May. You're about to go to the Builds Bio Conference at our old stomping grounds in Industry City. Any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, I'm very excited to go there. It's going to be at a co-working space called Camp David in Industry City, where I used to work out of in 2018. It's a beautiful space. It's very aesthetically pleasing when you go in there. You've been there, of course. The vibe is really, really nice. So I'm just excited to be in that space. But even more so because we're going to see a lot of our friends there. We're going to see Suzanne Lee from Biofabricate, Sabria Stukes, who will be on the podcast soon. She is the chief scientific officer of IndieBio. And I can probably go on for the next 10 minutes just dropping names, but I'm excited to see who's there. And the whole point of the conference is to talk about how engineering biology is transforming the industrial world, but also to get together people who are creating companies and that might need lab space. So talking about having the city think about biotech incubators and how they can promote it more. A lot of it has to do with space being available to create these companies and create these labs and plants. And I'm excited to hear what people are going to be talking about at this conference. And I'll certainly give a recap when I come back. Yeah, I'm sad that I'm not going. Unfortunately, the timing didn't work out for me because I have to actually do work today. (laughs) Not that we don't work every day, but I had a series of phone calls that all just happened to happen on the day of this conference. And this conference came up a little bit quickly. 
one thing that I'm hoping, since it is a Brooklyn conference, I'm hoping, Uram, that you do get to talk to someone from the city about my garbage obsession. Yes. And then number two, maybe you can find someone who you can talk to about my other obsession, which is bioreactors. Mm -hmm. And for those of you listening to the pod who don't know what a bioreactor is, it's basically a, let's just say, a brewery in the biggest terms, a brewery where you would brew medicine or meat. And I'm very interested in the bioreactors being developed for me. And I think that's a perfect segue to introduce our guests on the pod today. Iran, why don't you take it away? Yeah, absolutely. Alternative proteins, cultured meats, cell-based meat, there are a lot of terms for it, but the people that we know, Gabe and Semit of Orbillion are doing some amazing things with creating alternatives to Wagyu beef, the prime beef of beefs. And they're doing it in such an interesting way. They're very thoughtful in their approach. And you guys, when you hear about this, you're going to think about alternative proteins in a whole new way. And you're going to be excited when it hits the market and it's going to be on your plate. So I'll let Gabe and Savant take it away. Awesome. Let's go. All right. Samit, Gabrielle, Iram, welcome to Grow Everything. It's so good to have you guys here. Hello. Hello. Great to be here. This is our first time having two guests. So it's a party now. It's not just two guests. It's also two guests who are first representatives from cellular agriculture. So I would love to have you guys define what that means, but also tell us your backgrounds. Of course, I can jump in real quick. I'm Gabriel, one of the co-founder and CTO at Orbillion Bio. At Orbillion, what we do is really prime beef. So we are creating cellular agriculture prime beef. And it's very simple. Why would you start with prime beef? Is The question is, why would you start not with prime beef if you can offer the same value, but just have a higher value product? So that's really what we do. And I'm Gabriel. I did a PhD in molecular biology. I did a postdoc at UC Berkeley. And my last study, I was really in synthetic biology. I used plants, mammalian cells, yeast cells, bacteria cells. And what I did is all send bio stuff you can do, genetically engineer things. And then I moved to the American Institute for Chemical Engineer on Wall Street in New York. I've lived there for many, many years, where I really oversee and the deployment of large events related to scientific biology, books, grants with the Department of Energy, Department of Defense, and many others. And then I started this company with Samet Yildirim, my co-founder. Hi, I am Samet Yildirim. As Gabriel mentioned, I am one of the third co-founders and the, currently the chief of operations. My background is quite similar. I'm also a very technical biologist by training, then graduate studies on biophysics. But I got a little bit bored about doing just basic science and then jumped into some applied and then got another master's in business. Since then, my life is all about developing biotech innovation and commercialize them all the way from small startups to mid to large size corporates. Prior to our billion, I was with the German biopharma company called Boring Ingelheim. I was the global head of technology and innovation. And my job really to disrupt how we do cell culture at large scale today. And I come up with some very intensified ways of doing it. Uh, and then today we still have the same mindset at Orbillion as well. And then we carry all this knowledge into the new space, which is cellular agriculture that's very exciting for. So there are many terms for what you do. And Gabriel and I, we talked about this when we hung out for the first time. So you said cellular agriculture, cell-based meat, cultured meat, no-kill meat, clean meat, alternative proteins, the list goes on. Which term are you using the most and why? Or do you use them interchangeably for different reasons? I would love your thoughts. 
personally, I think at this time we're a startup, right? So there's no product in the market. Summit can go a little bit more into details, but what I could say is we as a company, obviously we don't represent all companies and cultivated made companies. There's about probably 70 companies. I would say we're second generation companies. So there, there's some companies that were much older. We came in and now there's probably a third and a fourth generation. Meat is trillions of dollar market, right? It's so big. So now the labeling is very complex, right? Because we believe in transparency. So we want a, a title, a name that actually will really portray what we're doing. It is made of cell. And so cell-based meat makes more sense. Cell culture meat makes sense too, because it's meat through a cell culture process. Some people use cultivated meat, which I think personally, this is just my thoughts is a little bit misleading but also it's a very nice word right i like cultivated sounds very expensive and a great way for food but now there's going to be pushback or not for the labeling and we'll see what type of name will come up but i would say that some people call it fake meat (laughs) alternative meat alternative proteins as well so there's like additional words that portray at large what we're doing i think i can add that we only do not use fake or synthetic meat And then the rest of somehow describes what we do. And then depending on the audience, whether they get the right message, we interchangeably use them. It's a debate at the regulatory level at this moment. Perhaps you followed. So many companies, including some organizations outside of our industry, propose their way of using the term on the labels. We are also following that. But at this moment, in a technical term, for us, it is cell-cultured meat or cultivated meat. So these are the best two that we generally use. And the way I understand it is that some of the pushback was from, say, the more traditional meat growers. So the beef industry, the chicken industry, maybe the pork industry, they were all pushing regulations that would not allow the label of meat to any of these products. Is that correct? Could you maybe go into that a little bit? Yes and no. Uh, The reason probably is that because there's a specific definition of what meat is, and then that definition needs to be expanded with the evolution that we are in as a humankind. That old-fashioned definitions actually create that type of reality. And then the other side of the reality is that as industry, we also need to do more talking to all the stakeholders Then what are we going to propose uh, is a complementary solution, but not really taking something out of people's table. So we believe all the versions of meat products will be available in the future. And then it will be totally consumer's decision what to really consume. If you look at from that perspective, there are solutions in the future that we can put together. In general, what I like to think about is like the plant-based milk, right? We say it's plant-based milk. Is it milk? Is it not milk? Honestly, to me, Personally, it doesn't matter because I use it as milk. I put it as milk in my cereals. I put it as milk, as a plant-based milk in my coffee. And it took, what, about 15% of the market in the United States. So I think it's very important because as a consumer, plant-based milk is very clear. It's very transparent for me. It's a milk. I use it as a milk, but it's made of plant-based milk. So if the name is transparent and honest, everybody will eat it. Yeah, but all milk is plant-based. Cows just happen to be the factory that makes the milk. (laughs) I like that. It's like we made a nice discussion. Yeah, yeah we, did a, we did an interview with Kristen Ellis of Lower Carbon, who's an investor friend of ours. And she said, if you think about it, all fuel is biology. And she's, it's just whether it's new biology or old biology, which is true. 
Petrochemicals are just biology that is very old. Agree. So what inspired each of you to get into this cultured meat, cultivated meat industry? I generated from three to ten million dollars within five years of annual revenue for my previous department. I've spent a lot of time on a diaspora of different technologies. But what I thought was very interesting is that this one is that really mission-oriented. I'm a mission-oriented person. So I actually wanted to form a company so that I'm not just generate revenue for organization, but I'm actually uh, changing something, right? You can make money on the way. You are startups. This is the whole objective is to really sell a product that people want. But in the same time, you can be mission oriented and create a product that is better for you. And that possibility is amazing. Better for you is not just you. We are the earth. So better for the earth is better for you. For me, as a person that I love eating meat, this technology opens up a lot of exciting potential. What the meat can be in the future is the one side. And I also want generations to have continuously access to meat. And then bioprocessing, when you look at it, and biotechnology in general, it is a great tool that for us to really overcome many future challenges as humankind. And then one of them will be food, unfortunately. And then we came together and then we thought that let's put something together. When that happens, at least we'll be ready to provide some solution. I think it's fascinating to think about that especially when it comes to conquering space. But what are the environmental issues with meat? Just so that our audience understands what some of those challenges are. Meat takes land, right? So a lot of our land use, you can trace a tremendous amount of percentage. I think it's about 8% of carbon dioxide would be traced to animal agriculture beef alone. Imagine, that's just beef. So if you change the way you produce beef, you basically will have a positive impact on the environment and the carbon dioxide produced, right? Meat, the animal itself, in terms of conversion from plants to animal mass, this is not the best conversion, right? First. Second, the animal takes a lot of the land. That land is not available to grow forests or to grow other plants or crops. And these crops are absorbing carbon dioxide in the air. This is very important because the animal also produces carbon dioxide. But intensive agriculture is taking a lot of the land, produce a lot of carbon dioxide, and take a lot of our resources. The other part that has always impressed me is the amount of water it takes to produce a gram of protein from a cow versus, say, a cricket or something like what you guys are doing. You need much less water to produce the cells that you're growing. Cow is an interesting way of technical explanation of a cow. Is It's a very inefficient bioreactor. Yeah. So whatever input you give to cow, which is water, feed, whatever it is, Whatever coming out as a product in, from the industrialization perspective is not the best. That's one of the angles, right? So today, the mass market, it's a meat coming from the breeds that they are not the most delicious or nutritious ones. They are the most high yield, humankind developed animals. So that's the reality, but it's not very well seen by the public. So instead of using cow as a bioreactor, what we offer, let's use a real bioreactor that we can control every input and output. And then we can develop some process that gives a extreme high yield to feed the entire world. Can you, since you're on the topic, just walk us through very simply, like what the process looks like to create cultured meat? We start with the animal. We take a small biopsy. So this means you have a cell sampling, right? That cell sampling, you don't need to kill the animal or etc. You have just a small cell sampling. Of those cells, you will extract in laboratory conditions the cells that you need for your process. You will characterize, you will go over a lot of different processes just to make sure that you have a cell line. That cell line will be used in bioreactor. Those big bioreactor looks just like when you go to a brewery where they're making beers, except it's yeast. There's no controller. There's a lot of more input, output, sensor, etc. But imagine a big brewery tank. And then you will have in there cells that are proliferating, dividing, 
and becoming a mass of cells. We assemble those cells as meat. And this process was used for pharmaceutical for a long time. Many of the therapies and medication that we have are produced to that system. So we're just really utilizing the system that's already been invented to produce a product that is meat and not a pharmaceutical. So this is really a simple way to see it. Also, we think that in the future, some of the cell ag companies, perhaps our cell ag companies will basically show the process. So you will be able to see where your meat is from. Just like when you go to a farm, you can see where the animal is from. So you will have the same possibility, just like in a brewery. I want you to get more into what's the transition from cell to stake. And I'm glad you mentioned that you imagine people being able to go see those bioreactors. Iram and I, we live and work in Brooklyn. I would imagine we'd have some bioreactors in the Navy Yard or in Industry City that maybe one is run by you guys and one's run by a competing company and producing different kinds of meats. And then we can like taste test them. I did, Craft yeah. meats, small batch, single. I'm very excited for this future, but tell us what does that look like to go from the cells to a steak? It's a very good way. When I think about it is you don't have to regrow the animal to again, ground it into our ground product. In the United States, 60% of customers or families are eating ground beef. So why would you not sell ground beef first and produce just directly to ground? So you don't have to do a whole cut. We're not eating steak every day at home. This is like, I'm not grilling everything. I'm take the easiest path on Monday to Friday for me, right? For example, in our company, what we do, we're launching a ground product at first. We also think that consumers are very well educated on a ground product. If you go to the alternative protein sectors in the area of your grocery nearby, in the United States, at least, if you go to Whole Food, for example, you will see in the alternative, a lot of the products are ground. <laughs> People are used to it. It's already cooked. It's very easy. You just put it in your salad or cook pasta and add it on top of it. My mother does it, right? And my mother is what, 73 and she's using alternative protein. So there's a lot of people from different generations are already educated on that product. So that's great. So we come with a ground product. For us, when you take the cells, you can add very little ingredients if you want to make it a product that tastes one way or another, right? But what you do is that you receive your cells at the end and they're not differentiated. I think that's the most important part. I'm gonna make it very simple. It's made at least of fat and at least of muscles, right? At least of muscles and fat cells. So these are the most important, I would say, to make your product. So as long as you produce both of them in your production, you can add them and combine them at the end. Doing a ground product is relatively easy. And if it's easy, it costs less for your company. It also means that you will reach price parity faster. So this is a very attractive way of doing a product. But Samet and I have a slide we've presented many times across the world and that slide showed there's so many ways to do cultivated meat. There's not just one way. There's multiple technology available, multiple ways. This is the path we have chosen, the most effective path that we think will help us reach prosperity because at the end of the day, how much it costs is the most important part. You go to the grocery and you want to pay what you pay already right now for price or less, but not more. Absolutely. Yeah. How much it costs and also how it tastes. Carl and I were actually having dinner with one of our clients and we were just talking about alternative proteins. And there's this article in Bro Magazine, the CEO was talking about a test that they did for their fish. So they have cell-based fish. And what they did was they had a Michelin star chef make dishes out of their fish. And then they had a food critic come in and taste it. And the food critic said that the fish tastes too fresh. What was missing was the terroir, like the flavor that comes from the animal living in its environment similar to wine and other types of food that we eat and vegetables and fruits. I feel like there's a lot of ter terroir missing in the fruits and vegetables here in the U.S. But how do you guys think about that in terms of flavor profiles? 
Have you made enough meat to taste it? Yeah, I think that's a very great point. The last question, yes, we have enough meat to taste. Actually, we have been running tasting sessions for a while right now with some selected individuals. You can guess who they are. At least for our product, taste is quite similar to what you would taste as a conventional beef. It can be a different from animal to animal. If we don't grow fish or chicken in our lab, our platform supports the mammalian cell lines. So we can do beef, lamb, pork, venison, bison, all those type of animals into our platform, we can grow them. There is also ongoing research from our side as well as inside the industry that what controls the taste. So animal, if you think animal itself, they just keep walking around, they eat some stuff. And then depending on what kind of feed they are taking, the taste and flavor of product sometimes changes. So that is the very exciting area that we are also looking into it. Like, for example, what we can add into our cell culture media as a result, cells develop some sort of a flavor profile. Is it really required for the first set of products? I don't think so. Uh, the initial product launch will really going to prove that this technology can be scalable. And eventually we put more robustness, which we will reduce the cost down for the required nutrition and protein. And then the third generation of products will become with a superior taste. By then, all the companies will learn the science, what's happening behind that. I would add here even to this that one very big growing area, and you can see it in Tenbio as well, is food and health. If you can combine both of these items, I think you really have a new value proposition for the client. So we all striving to eat better and healthier. Our goal is to do a better for you beef. That is literally our goal. Usually in conventional agriculture, the animal meat will have a composition of fat, composition of cholesterol. You will have tremendous possibility to create products with higher value that are healthier or that are healthier for a certain segment of the market. That's a huge value added. And then another thing is bioreactors because you brought some very interesting thing, the terroir, the age of the meat, right? Will we be able to replicate it? Right now, the technology is not correct. In your bioreactor, it's fully sterile. There's no bacteria. When you age meat, the bacteria and the microbiome in the meat is very important to get to that process. So will we be able to emulate it? Will we have to have some of that biome? Perhaps we can in the future. We're not there yet, that's for sure. But that's something that we want to do. These are value-added products to bring it to the prime sector and to make healthier food so you increase your proposition for your clientele. I would love to have meat that had the good cholesterol in it because my doctor said I need to eat more you know, fish oil, flaxseed oil. So if I can be like, nah, I'm just going to eat some Orbillion premium meats and I'll be fine. And I'm excited by the idea of just having different taste profiles. I want to know what beef from the 1920s tasted like. I was just saying my dad was a meat cutter, so we often had meat in the house. Sometimes I'll buy local beef when I'm upstate in the Adirondacks, grass-fed versus when I buy it in Brooklyn in the supermarket. But really the thing that I notice the most is the way pork looks, looks very different from the way it used to look. It used to look like meat. Now it looks like this white, very light colored. And it's something I talked to my dad about a lot. I'm always like, do you think pork is different? And he's like, yeah, but what do you mean? But I also often will say you notice a difference in chicken because chicken doesn't really have much of a flavor. In fact, when you buy an organic chicken, maybe you've had it in the fridge a couple of days, it actually starts to smell like chicken. And my wife will say that chicken doesn't smell right. It smells chickeny. And I'll say that's what chicken is supposed to smell like. <laughs> so the possibilities are fascinating. I'm curious, two questions. One is where do you get the name or billion? And then which is the meat that you're starting with? You've said you've been doing these taste tests. 
Why is it important for you guys to start with a premium product? I can talk about the name and I will let Sam talk about all the different products we've served because we are one of the few companies who have served four different type of meat. Although now we narrow it down to one. So Sam can talk about this. I can say Orbillion. At first, we started with a technology that allows us to do organoids. Organoids are simply small 3D cell culture product. So they mimic what an organoid is in an animal, for example, skin or something like that. So a little round meatball, I like to call them micro round meatball. And we were able to do billion of it with our technology. So it was just or billion. And it's probably not going to be our last name, just saying. This was a name that probably came up in one night. <laughs> that's cool. Regarding the premium product line, I think that that's a very good question. As I mentioned, we had few criteria how we came up with the premium line. So the first one was, as I mentioned, we are not consuming in the mass market that the breeds are the best for our health or for our joy to eat, right? For the flavor and texture and nutrition profile basis. So then our proposition was, why are we not starting from the best out of that? Instead of going to the very industrialized breeds, we could go back to the breeds that they have the most value for the consumer. And then most of those breeds are the premium segment at this moment. And then that's one of the initial points. The other point was, okay, the premium segment products are not available to the mass market. So I would love to eat, for example, certain variety of breeds. Whenever I go to another grocery store, even if it is organic, grass-fed, it's some certain breed that I don't want to eat, but I'm forced to eat that breed, right? Because the rest of the premium products cannot be mass produced, and it's not enough to distribute at the mass market. So this technology can also, in the future, change that paradigm. If we can start provide premium products to the mass market, then what will be the consumer choice is the question. We just would like to give that opportunity to the consumer. And then the third criteria was really biotechnology is expensive initially until you get to the scale. Once you get the scale, there are many cases that biotech can make products are cheaper and more efficient and more consistent. But up until getting that point, we need a very good position in the market for our pricing. And then premium line gives us that opportunity working with, for example, fine dining restaurants, hotel chains, and eventually at the grocery level, put us in a price range that we can be profitable earlier than our competition out there. Right. So the breed that you're working on now, is that like a Wagyu cow? What's the actual? We have Wagyu beef uh, in our lab that right now is going to be initial product for the beef. We also have, as Gabriel mentioned, we have a variety of breeds in there. We have lamb uh, on certain species. We have venison. We have bison. They all are coming from the breeds that they are very prime. And we will sell it at prime beef, right? Which is, if you sell prime beef, why not selling the best when yeah. you can? It's not harder. So we do actually argue beef. What has been the reaction from consumers? You, Gabriel, had said that you've run 36 taste tests in the past 12 months. What are people saying about the flavor, the texture, just overall with the product, what's the reaction? So we are looking for a product that will be prime. So obviously there's different things that goes with it. Wagyu or prime beef that we do have a high component of fat, if you want. The fat profile is different in Wagyu as well, if you look carefully. And then you research about it. I'm not going to go into the whole scientific detail. But we've had a lot of people like it. I would say, I personally say it ranks seven, eight or nine. 
but obviously it really depends on each person and each recipe. So we've tested it in various different recipes. So some people like more spice, food, food is very cultural. So some people say I would much better not have spice or have more spice. So it depends on how you cook it. 36 times, we've been always do a meatball. We did Thai meatball, we did a baoban, we did, we tried various different way. What we want to show is the versatility of the product, but it's delicious. And it's definitely something I will eat. I would say compared to plant-based, it would be a much more elevated alternative, much closer to me, obviously, since it's meat, <laughs> it's made of cells for me. So has a product been the same since the first meat that you created? Is it like a design, build, test, learn situation where you'd go back and like, all right, this tastes a little bit like, like I was too fresh, <laughs> tastes plain, or did you, did you have to go back and reformulate or... Is it something that it came out because it's animal cells, it came out the way that you intended and people are just receiving it positively? I would say we improve every day. We still do that. We're trying to do excellence, right? It's like you're never, never, ever, ever happy. You never sit yourself and be like, oh my God, we got it because you got it, but we still want to make it even better towards a better for you beef, right? So a beef that takes even more than beef, who knows, right? This will be really attractive as a proposition in the future. So right now, yes, of course, we always do iteration after iteration. And also even when you do tasting, like I told you, there is the culinary aspect, like how you're going to cook it is also very important because honestly, when you cook beef at home, if you eat it a little bit more raw or less raw or more cooked or well done, or if you had spice or not, if you had salt or not, if you cook it with butter or oil, it might be completely different taste flavor. So it's the same thing with our product. So I would say we need to do better in the recipe, which is really nice because it's an art that's really well known. And we need also to improve the flavor always towards a better product and have a value. I, I want to add this, right? So this is the potential of this technology is actually we control the process at the cellular level. So it is not possible when we use animals to make meat because we cannot study the cell and then control the input and output, what's happening in the, inside the animal body. But in our process, it's totally different. We study constantly the cell biology of a certain breed and then try to understand what input cause what kind of an output as a food product. So from the first version all the way to the probably 100th or 200th version now we have, it is all about learning that cell biology and then coming up with the most nutritious and flavorful product for the consumer. So it's always an iterative process. You make something, taste something, and then go back and then change something and then see what's the effect on the final product. That's what I do with just recipes. Like exactly. our, our ground beef portfolio in my home is making meatballs hamburgers and what we call kima, which is like seasoned beef nice. with peas. And like, yeah, that has a lot of different seasoning. Is there a certain recipe that's been winning mm. at Orbillion? We've been doing the situation of a Thai meatball. I don't know our secret this is honestly, but I, I pretty much like it. I've always liked Thai flavors. I feel like they fit really well with this, but there is another one that we've done in the past, which is like basically just a layer of meat over rice, just like a sushi rice. It's flavorful, but not so flavorful that it overpowers the meat on top of it. So I really like it. And the oil goes in the rice. So this, these are my two favorites, but the meatball, which is great is when you do a serving, it doesn't crumble on people's clothing. It's not messy. You can just eat it just like that anywhere at any time. So I think for a tasting meatball is a very nice, appropriate way to serve. Hearing you guys talk about learning the cell biology and being able to control growth. And then earlier in the conversation, talking about how you might be able to customize flavors. 
What it makes me think is what we're finding with some of the other companies that we've talked about is they're using biological process to create new materials. And they're finding that the performance characteristics are very different than the existing material. The example I use is cement. This company is using algae to use calcium carbonate to produce a new kind of cement. And the cement that they're producing has very different performance characteristics compared to the cement that causes 8% of the global carbon emissions. And so hearing you guys talk about the cells, the way you culture them, the cell biology makes me think that there's going to be some really interesting performance characteristics that are developed by you or other people who have access to this kind of technology. I agree. Right now we're coming with a prime product from Wagyu origin, right? But it's going to be a prime beef. We're not going to sell it necessarily under Wagyu aisle. It's just going to be a prime beef, cell-based beef. But there's new value proposition. You just say that we can mix cells together. We have plenty of different cell lines in-house. We can mix the meat. Samit and I also have different nationalities. Although we're both American in the United States, we also have a baggage. Canadians is from Turkey. In Turkey, they've been mixing meat for a long time. So I was saying it's nothing new. They're already doing it in the culinary aspect. But in our case, we can do it also at the cellular level. That's totally fine. We can come up with a battery of new products and new value added. And frankly, I was raised on bolognese and okay, not the best meat in the world, but I'm saying what was in there, I'm not really sure. So I we think, definitely will offer a new value. <laughs> I think it is, it is not too off to think about the future that food will be very customized. And then the more we know about cell biology and control it in a safe perspective will provide us that future. So imagine the food is going to be used for health, perhaps, and then everyone need a different type of nutritional profile to get the best out of it from their food. The more we know about the cell, the more we can get close to that future. So then we can provide that type of solution when it is needed. Food is medicine. I've been a big advocate for that. One of the things I thought was very interesting is that, so my backgrounds were Indian and turmeric is a very common spice we use in all our food and curries and things like that. So when I see like turmeric pills, like on the shelves of the vitamin store, I'm like, why don't you just eat it? (laughs) <laughs> what if you just sprinkle it on your meat? Just having, but being able to on cellular level or on a product level, be able to incorporate those type of molecules or compounds that could be healthier. It's fascinating. And to what Carl mentioned about changing like the performance characteristics of the functionality, Gabe, you mentioned just a meatball that doesn't crumble. That's incredible without any fillers like egg or <laughs> breadcrumbs. So if you can make a pure meatball, Without any fillers that doesn't crumble, you guys are Hmm. going to be like, or billionaires. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I'm fascinated by is just thinking about how cultural traditions will evolve when these kinds of meats are available. My favorite food is tacos. People who know me will always know that I'll always offer to go out and have tacos. And there's a great series on Netflix called the Taco Chronicles, and they basically profile every single kind of taco in Mexico. And as I was watching it, I kept thinking to myself, how's that going to change? They're doing goat tacos. How's that going to change when we have goat meat available from different parts of the world? How does that change the tradition? Because a lot of the ways that these certain tacos are made is very traditional based on the location in Mexico, based on the meat that's been available, and just thinking what the possibilities are from a health point of view, from a taste point of view, and then the tradition, I think just makes things very interesting. Well, first, I'm so sad because you never invite me for tacos, you invite me for beers, but <laughs> let's have next taco time. and beer next time. Let's go. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think you're right. I foresee a future that's very different. I don't 
think conventional meat will go away. I don't think so at all. That's not the point either. I think we offer a value that we are making the world more robust, right? Because if you cannot produce meat, like we've seen during COVID, you may have other processes that are completely sterile, uh, won't be affected by a virus necessarily because it's built into a sterile tested production. So I think we offer these type of value added, but I foresee a future where you see different type of alternative coming in that you may want to eat a plant-based one day. They may be something that we don't know. We have cell-based, plant-based. There might be something else coming up in the future. I don't know what it's going to be, but I have a future where people are more and more educated. The best example is when you look at plant-based. It's crazy. Everyone I know is drinking a different type of milk now, but it's never milk like as we knew it milk from a cow. It's plant-based cashew milk. I have a friend who only almond milk, which was like the first gens of alternative milk. So I wonder what the future is going to be, but it's definitely going to be different than today. And it's obvious we see it with the trends. I think also in the United States, we're very lucky. It's a very multicultural country where trends in the food comes all the time. There's always new trends and some of them stay, some of them disappear. But if it's like a steady product that is versatile, that you can recreate with new iteration, like cell-based potential has, I think it's there to stay for a long time. There's lots of trends. We see that a lot here in Brooklyn because we have melting pot from cultures. But I don't know, if Carl, you remember, maybe you guys have heard of the ramen burger. Do you remember Mm. that? I don't remember that. They like took ramen and they like made it, shaped it into a patty and they just slipped a burger in between two ramen patties. It was weird, but <laughs> the trend's over. Wonder why. You guys mentioned the meatballs and, you know, the tastings. What are you guys thinking in terms of getting the meat into the market? Would it be something where you would create a product and sell directly to consumers like Impossible had or working with partners? What are you thinking in terms of market entry? Our initial launch strategy is based on significant number of partnerships. So initially, we will offer this product through the food service. So it will be a dining experience for people. There is a good reason behind that because we have been talking with potential customers. And then although this is real meat, it is not something... Uh, that they used to as a manufacturing process. So they really would like to get that experience from the hands of a chef they trust and then understand that, wow, okay, this is something I can also take it to my home and then cook it and then eat every day. So we, as as Orbillion and then many companies in the industry, uh, will start building that consumer adoption through the food services. And most of the companies will try the same way. But we don't stop at that point because we have to scale. And then once we get to scale, the product will go to the mass market and then it needs to be distributed. So Orbillion, we take many steps already to sign those partnerships. We have a very big partnership with the Loitum Food, which is a 100-year-old, very traditional meat distributor company, family-owned in Netherlands. And then they are going to distribute our products over 20 countries, over 1,200 channels that they have, which ends up, I think, 15,000 different spots that consumers can go and get our meat. And then that is what we see necessary. Work with traditional companies that they know how to put meat to the plate, but initially work with food service to build customer adoption. We are a lean company. We're small startups who's growing fast and agility and being fast is the most important, but also we want to use our capital very wisely, especially in an environment like that right now. So working with these distributors, the beauty of it is they already know what to do. You don't know as a startup, you're not like the best at biotech, the best at the production and bioreactor, the best at selling it, the best at direct to consumer, the best at marketing. 
it's a lot to ask for one company. So I think it's a really best way for us to get influencers, like Sam says, distributors, because they can distribute it under the various different brands. And then the consumer sees it on various different brands. So if you start seeing it all over the place, your trust towards that ingredients is much greater and your accessibility too, because it's in different store under different labels. It offers a lot more for the industry as a whole. That's fantastic. A couple of years ago in Bilbao at a food conference. One of the people that was with me was Nevis Martinez of Novel Foods. Well, the thing that I really walked away very impressed by was seeing all these traditional 100-year-old, 150, 200-year-old meat producers that were there in the audience, very interested in cutting deals and wanting to talk with someone like Nevis because they knew that they needed to be able to offer cell-based as part of their portfolio. They could see the writing on the wall. And it sounds like you guys have experienced the same thing. Exactly. It's along the same lines as we discussed, like whether traditional meat companies or stakeholders, let's say, are against or supportive to this technology. And as you can see, the distributors, they are. They, although they are very traditional, uh, don't get it wrong. So when you talk to them, we had many hard times talking to them because it is very sensitive. They love meat. And then immediately they think that we are replacing something in, from their lifestyle. And then when they understand it's not the case, wow, okay, we are happy to help. That amazing. conversation needs to continue. Yeah, that's amazing. yeah, and we we have another co-founder, Patricia Bubner. She's the CEO at Orbillion. She's also a co-founder with Samantha and I. We started the company, the three of us, and she's facing, of course, as the CEO, she has to present more often than I do for sure. As all of Samantha presents a lot, but I, as she comes back with a lot of the story of the discussion she has directly with the stakeholders because she always has these discussions. So we definitely see a huge momentum, and we see a lot of interest with the companies. And a big change, like Simon says, where they came from an aggressivity, I'm not sure. And then now they're like, ooh, that's a proven concept. I like it. I want to be part of it. That's awesome. And you guys are fundraising right now. How's that going? Do you want to give some insight into what's that been like? What are you raising your A? What What is it you're raising? So we raised the seed round with the Y Combinator, and then we are never raising and always raising. <laughs> it's important <laughs> to get capital, but we want to be efficient, lean, and fast. These are our most important part. So I just keep it there. If anyone was interested in participating to our future rounds of investment, please contact us. This will be great. We're always happy to have a discussion and see where it goes. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, I talked a lot about Orbillion. So, you know, investors, you heard about it. Let's talk a little bit about just the vision and what the possibilities are, right? So this is not about a billion. We know you're not going to necessarily maybe do some things that you're about to talk about. So I hope you do talk about some of the possibilities of other meats. And I mentioned fish at the top of this episode, but have you guys thought about or come across very unique animals that have been cultured and then perhaps extinct animals? Discuss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think... Possibility is limitless at the end. This is science. Once you crack the code, I think we can put many different species in the engine to make those meats available. For us, the criteria is what is the value proposition we provide to the final consumer? Tasting extinct animals is very exciting and attractive, but how often is a consumer go and retaste that product is the question. We need something that consistently provides nutrition, flavor, and a necessity to the consumer that we can continuously sell. However, the, all the other ideas we also have, have in our mind and at the time they are our, in our discussions. But again, always the winning strategy is, okay, what do the consumer wants? Let's look at that and then make something they want to buy every day. 
They want to feed their families. They want to enjoy, and then sometimes tank, perhaps. This, this no, is we're, not talking about, we're not talking about winning strategies. We're talking about failing strategies. So, oh, <laughs> so let's oh. talk about those extinct animals. <laughs> extinct animals again. It is it is a very nice science experiment from my perspective. Yeah. The hard part is how are you going to do the blind taste when we make the products? For example, we make a meatball. We also make a say, similar meatball from the conventional version of our meat and then we do blind taste and then try to see, okay, are we getting close or are far away? If I make a dinosaur meat, what is the taste of dinosaur meat? Nobody knows. But I think from that sense, we can claim any output is a meat from extinct animal. But it is hard to really confirm whether it is real. And I always like to take parallel of industries that are similar, that have been positive and are still, and so I'm going to use again the milk, right? Do you want tiger milk and hippo milk very often? Everybody's adventurous, but you may want to taste it. But for us as a company, we want the customer to come back like some and say, so I think the first is solve something, <laughs> but I'm sure all of those alternative cray-cray idea will come to realization and will be sold. Will it be sold every day? I don't know. Who knows? Maybe if it tastes delicious, people will go back. But when I think about it, I think we are not an emulation of the molecules. We are the molecule in that sense. It is the meat cell that is meat that we're selling. We're not necessarily selling something that would emulate, so, such as plant-based, for example, or things like that. So that's a little bit different in terms of the, what the consumer will want and be ready to eat, maybe. Was there anything that we should have asked or you wished we would have talked about? I wish you wanted to sign up to the next tasting because we certainly have a lot of tasting in the next few weeks. If you're having one in New York, we're definitely going to have one. We're definitely there. And we will be in San Francisco at the end of May. We know what we're going to do, tacos. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys, for coming on. I know you guys have your investor call right after this. So hopefully we, we wish find you, you and we didn't confuse you too Thank much. You. And you guys pivoted <laughs> right now after this call. But <laughs> we love talking to you guys in the battle of proteins and just hanging out. So thank you so much. Awesome thank talking you so to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to talking to you soon. All right. That was an excellent episode. I am so excited for the future of cellular agriculture and cultivated meat. It's interesting because I went to an event. We seem to be always going to events. And I sat next to a bioreactor entrepreneur. She is focused on creating bioreactors for the cell therapy space. And she thought that the cultivated meat market was not doing very well. There probably is that perception in the marketplace, but actually when things are perceived to not be doing well, the smart entrepreneurs are just heads down getting things done. And the next thing you know, it's everywhere and people have made some really great progress. Gabe and Samet speak to that very well. One of the perceptions of the alternative meat industry, one of the negative perceptions is that it's really expensive. And Gabe and Samet talk a lot about reaching price parity and a lot of that has to do with how they manufacture the meats. And like you're saying, the innovators are thinking of more cost-efficient ways of doing that. What's the best media to use to cultivate these meats? How can you make it cheaper? Lots of people are on it and they know that we need alternative proteins to have a sustainable future where we can enjoy meat. And I thought it was really interesting when at the top of the episode, we were talking about what is a term we use for this industry, this new type of product? It's to me interesting that while we were talking about it, we basically started calling it meat anyway. Like it just went to meat. We differentiated it when we were comparing it to animal meat versus cell-based meat when we were comparing the two. But then when we were talking about it hitting the market, we were just saying, yeah, meat, the future generations can enjoy meat. 
it just is carnal to us. We are carnivores, our omnivores or herbivores. Some of us, I guess, damn, we all change, but historically our ancestors enjoyed meat. They needed it. There's a lot of evolutionary theories of meat helping us grow our brains and helping us think. And then when we ate shrooms, it helped us think a different way. That's the shroom theory, lots of theories of how we develop consciousness and the ability to speak. I digress, but me, I think it's very important to that. What did you think, Carl? These are your friends. You've known Gabe for quite some time and you've been looking into the space. I mean, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to cellular agriculture. And I think I would just start by saying the impact of livestock agriculture on the planet is really astounding. Livestock for human consumption generates nearly 15% of all global greenhouse gases. And surprisingly, 70% of the agricultural land, that is the land that we grow things on, is used to feed livestock. So that means that livestock is a big contributor to deforestation, loss of biodiversity, and even water pollution. And then if you step back even further, the amount of water that it takes to produce a protein with a cow compared to, say, a cricket is also astounding. It's liters and liters of water to give you that same gram of protein versus if you're doing it with an insect or if you were doing it in a lab or cultivating it. There is a very interesting report that was put out three or four years ago by a think tank called ThinkX. And they talk about how this cell ag space is moving so quickly that really by the end of this decade, so meaning 2030, we can see half of livestock agriculture gone which is an astounding statistic when you think about all that land that could be rewilded or used for other purposes. It could be used to actually grow food for humans as opposed to cows, pigs, and chickens. I'm glad that you underscored the sustainability aspect, the climate aspect, the land aspect of it. We need to say it over and over again so people can understand that producing livestock in this way is inefficient, not only for the meat, but also for the milk, which I really appreciated that Gabe had mentioned the comparison to how there's a lot of plant-based milks now, but when you go to a cafe, what kind of milk do you want? They don't say, do you want plant-based milk? Maybe they do, but they, they have like cow milk, almond milk, oat milk, all the different varieties. But maybe the same thing could happen to the meat industry where you say, do you want cow meat or do you want cell-based cow meat? I'm kind of spitballing here right now, but being able to say, all right, there is milk, but then there are varieties. There is meat and then there are varieties. And let's just move on. <laughs> we know it's not dangerous for you. One thing we did not talk about are the FDA's green light for developing cellular agriculture in the US. So that was a good signal saying that this is good. This is safe. Let's explore. But in the end, consumers just want delicious food. Yeah. Ultimately, we just want good food. And I don't think we got into it in the pod, but I had a conversation with an entrepreneur named Stanley Wang, who is working on developing cell lines for cellular agriculture. And his belief is we're building this entire ecosystem. And like I say, I'm interested in bioreactors right now. And the reason I'm interested is because I want to know how big of a bioreactor do you need to feed a city of 100,000 people, of a million people? And when those bioreactors are available, what cell lines can you put in there? And then what meat will be available for the population locally? So there's a lot of things that could be very beneficial for the environment. And there's a lot of infrastructure to be built to make this happen. So I'm very excited. Mm -hmm. I think Gabe and Samet were excellent guests. I can't wait to have them on again. And I also can't wait to have some other cell ag players in the pod. 
And I think what you brought up, Iram, about the storytelling is really essential because so much of this stuff is just about how do you tell the story? What's the messaging between these different kinds of meats or these different kinds of materials? And to your point, I think consumers at the end, they just want delicious food, just like they want to wear great clothes. And many of them don't care where it comes from. But I think being able to tell those biotech stories, and actually we know this, if you tell those biotech stories, there is early adopters who can help grow a market. And there's a lot to be said for starting small and getting raving fans. And that model has been proven over and over again. And most notably, I'll just use Patagonia as the example. They created an excellent product for a small group of people, outdoor enthusiasts, and now they're a multi-billion dollar company. I think mm -hmm. those examples can work very well for some of the clean meat companies, cell ag companies, and a lot of biotech companies that are focused on reaching consumers. Don't get me started on bioreactors because... You talked about uh, whose book was it? It was a Genesis machine. Yeah. With, uh, Amy Webb, when she talked about the future of alternative meats and being able to create a bioreactor that is a smaller volume, meaning maybe there are 10,000 liter tanks to make cellular agriculture right now, but maybe you just need a thousand liter tank and you can have them distributed near places that can take that meat and cook it. So at restaurants, at schools, at hotels, right? And then they can just have this distributed model of this bioreactor where they can upload different formulas to make different meats. And got me thinking about Chris and Alice and the team at OpenTrons and how they built a more affordable liquid handler versus some of the bigger players. And that unlocked a whole new market and a whole new way of, I guess, handling liquids. In the lab. Or doing lab chemistries or lab biology. That's really exciting to think about bioreactors in the way of a distributed model and something that's more affordable, put in the hands of the creators. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a company that makes Pico reactors. So these are bioreactors that are very small. It's actually called PIO reactor, P-I-O. They call themselves the affordable bioreactor. And they say it's user-friendly, flexible, and easy to scale. I don't know very much about these guys. It seems like they're focused more on the microbial side than on the cellular ag side, but maybe it's someone we can look into. If anybody in the audience knows them, tell us about them and send us our way because I want to know more about these companies that are developing these really tiny bioreactors. This is why we need to start a fund because we see that there is an opportunity in the market, perhaps. Maybe we still have to do a lot of due diligence on the need for Pico reactors. We but it seems like just anecdotally a really good idea. And I know we were just spitballing, but a small bioreactor sounds like a really cool idea. We've been kind of moving around. You were in Copenhagen. I went to Ingredients Day. I went to Interfex. I was just in Boston yesterday. We're getting ready to go to a big conference in just a couple of weeks from when this podcast releases. We're going to the SymbioBeta conference in San Francisco. That's the biggest synthetic biology conference in the world. We're expecting to see a lot of our friends there. As you said about the Builds Bio conference, we could probably spend a good 10 minutes talking about all the people who we know who either have been on the pod or people who we've known and met over the years. On Twitter, I've been reminiscing over going to SymbioBeta and posting some old pictures from the first time I went back in 2014. I know, Iram, it's going to be your first time. You're excited about it. Tell me why you're excited about going to SymbioBeta. Well, not only to see all of our friends that we've made over the years, but also to meet new ones, to see who's doing what, to 
help connect the dots. It's part of what we do because we're friendly, but we see people that should know each other and we make those connections. It's always fun. It's always fun connecting friends to each other. I'm excited to be in Oakland and be in that part of the world. I'm also looking forward to having our team together. So we're going to have Jordan, Aaron, and perhaps some new members of our team that we'll meet that will eventually join our team because that's what we do as well as always looking for partners and collaborators. So I'm really excited for that. And then I know you're going to be speaking at Zimbabwe Beta. I tend to moderate panels when I'm there. So I'm moderating two panels. One's on brand building, which is something we're very familiar with. And then another one is on brewers of the future. What does the future of brewing look like? And I'm very excited about that because we have a guy, Anye, who is brewing palm wine. And he's going to be paired with a guy who actually has a traditional brewery outside of Boston. And he and I met at Ferment. I don't know if the timing is going to work out. I may be teaching a section of the Introduction to Synthetic Biology class before the conference starts. So we're looking forward and we should have asked John for a discount code so that our listeners could get a discount code to sign up. Maybe we'll get it and we'll put it in our show notes. It is a little bit last minute, but hey, if you're in California and you know you want to go or you just realize the opportunity, because it is a great opportunity if you are in the synthetic biology space or want to get into it, it's a really good opportunity to go meet people. That's the best way of getting involved is just talking to people that are in the space, learning about what they're doing. So if we get that promo code, it will be in the show notes. Otherwise, it'd be worth the full price, I would say. Yeah, definitely yeah, worth it. <laughs> you're welcome, John. <laughs> All right, I think that's the pod. Yeah, I got to run, Carl, because I have to go to this Builds Bio. Really love this podcast. I really love this episode. All right. So just, I haven't said this in a while, but thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You listeners make this podcast possible. We really appreciate you. We've reached 5,000 plays, which is a not insignificant amount for a small podcast. And we do it for you. So if you have questions or comments, please reach out to us. You can always find us on Twitter or LinkedIn and share with your friends and let them know about the Grow Everything pod. Thank you so much. Bye.